Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Each week, I have the opportunity to bring you a timely discussion on some news of the day that relates to energy. This week, we're going to be talking about the effort in Congress to lift the oil export ban. Now, if you've been listening to this show, America's Voice for Energy, which has now been on for more than a year, you probably know that I've written on this topic and spoken on this topic several times. That's because I believe this is a really important subject, not only for the oil industry and the jobs in the oil industry and the downstream jobs, but for the American economy as a whole, which is why I've spent so much time on this topic. Today on the show, you're going to have the opportunity to hear from my friend, Congressman Steve Pierce, who's a congressman from New Mexico representing uh, the oil industry in the Permian Basin. Next, you're going to hear from Jim Patty, and Jim is the president of the Maritime Institute, and he's going to be talking about a program called the Maritime Security Program, the MSP, which has become a part of this bill, which was put forth by Congressman Joe Barton out of Texas. This bill is called H.R. 702, and the Maritime Security Program was married with the bill in an effort to bring along the Democrat members of the House. My final guest today is going to be Toby Mack. And Toby Mack is the president of the Energy Equipment and Infrastructure Alliance. Toby's going to be talking specifically about how this bill will help job creation, particularly in what is called the downstream. Uh, and this, these are jobs that are created that are not necessarily in the actual oil industry that you might not think of would be impacted. I'll give you a quick example. I was in Washington, D.C. on Friday, October 9th, when the House passed H.R. 702 to lift the oil export ban. It was an exciting thing to watch and to see the machinations going on in Congress. On the plane on the way home, I sat next to a young man. He was married, had two children, and he'd been in Virginia for some training. His profession is in the commercial air conditioning and heating industry. Now, you might think that has nothing to do with the oil and gas industry, but as he and I chatted, he told me that he has some friends in his same industry that were working on a project for Anadarko Petroleum. And Anadarko was doing a, a building project. And Anadarko was, his friends were working on these three new buildings for Anadarko. But then the price, uh, the price crash uh, for crude oil came, and Anadarko put these projects on hold. So his friends that were working on the Anadarko project were directly impacted by the downturn in the oil industry. So that's what we mean when we talk about these downstream jobs, these jobs that you might not think of as being a part of the oil industry. Now, this morning, I had the opportunity to talk with Congressman Cuellar from the 28th District in Texas. That district includes 
the Eagleford Shale Play, which is where a lot of our new oil is coming from in the United States, those kind of plays. Now, I wish you could hear what Congressman Cuellar had to say. He was eloquent, and he, it was such a great interview. Unfortunately, the technology didn't work, or maybe it was operator error. Maybe I pushed a wrong button. But the bottom line is the interview with Congressman Cuellar was not recorded. So for the first time in the year plus that I've been doing this show, I'm doing a monologue for this opening segment. I hope you'll find it interesting. Congressman Cuellar probably would have been more interesting. But he was fascinating because as a Democrat, he's one of the co-sponsors of, of H.R. 702. And part of his role in this bill was to get many of his Democrats on board to vote for H.R. 702. And he and I talked this morning about some of the, the um resistance he found with his Democrat members in the House. Many of them said things like, and I heard this when I was in Washington, D.C. last month, participating in the Energy and Commerce Committee meeting where they voted this bill out of committee. Uh, I heard many of the, the representatives, the Democrats who were against this bill, saying things like, and I heard this on Friday as well, they were saying things like, well, you know, this is going to put a lot of money in the pockets of big oil. That was one of their concerns. But, you know, the Republicans, the argument on the other side is, but you know what? When businesses are successful, they create jobs. When businesses are not successful, they lay people off. And we've seen that in the oil industry. And Congressman Cuellar understood that. And he, he wanted to, he met one-on-one -on -one with many of his Democrat colleagues in hoping to get that idea across to them. Now, one of the other arguments that they had was that this was going to raise the price of gasoline for the consumer. And, you know, as I've been talking with people about this, this is one of the biggest uh, misunderstandings that I've seen that people have, is that, you know, the reason the oil industry wants this bill uh, passed so badly, the reason the oil industry wants the oil export ban lifted is because it will increase the price of a barrel of oil in the United States. Now, logic would tell you, if you lift the price of a barrel of oil, that's going to make the price of gasoline go up. And Congressman Cuellar told me, no representative wants to vote for something that can later be used in an advertisement against them that, you know, Congressman so-and-so voted for this bill, and because of that, the price of gasoline has gone up. He explained to me that he has met one-on-one -on -one with many of his colleagues explaining to them the mismatch, as I like to call it, between the light, sweet crude that we are producing in the United States today and the heavy sour crude that our refineries, many of our refineries in the United States, are uh, configured to handle. So what we have is a situation where we have more light, sweet crude being produced than the refineries can actually suck up, you might say. And so we've got our uh, storage tanks full to overflowing almost in the United States. 
But interestingly, our allies in Europe and in Israel, they actually want our oil because their refineries are configured to handle our light, sweet crude. But we can't sell it to them because of this export ban. Now, where it gets a little bit confusing is that the light, sweet crude in America is actually sold at a discount over the net, the global price of crude, which is called Brent. That's the global benchmark. And so if you listen to the news at night, you might hear them say, well, oil closed today at. Listen for if they say WTI or Brent. And if the news reports that you are listening to offer both prices, you'll see that there's about a 3 to $6 discount these days between the price of WTI and the price of Brent. If we are allowed to export our oil into the global marketplace, what it will do is get rid of that discount for our American producers, and the price of oil will actually go up a couple dollars a barrel, which makes sense that it would make the price of gasoline be higher. But the reality is, as we put our oil into the global marketplace, guess what will happen to the price of Brent? It will actually come down. Now, why is that important? It's important because gasoline in the United States is priced based on Brent. So the reality is, while the price of a barrel of oil for U.S. producers will actually go up, the price for Brent, therefore the price, the base price of gasoline, will actually come down. So this is a win-win. Additionally, it's a benefit to our national security as we can help our allies, particularly in Israel and, the, and, and Europe, Eastern Europe in particular, where they're getting so much of their oil right now from Russia. And you know, we, we've seen historically, Russia has no qualm about using oil as a weapon. So it's important for our uh, allies in the Middle East that um, we, we export our oil to give them more security. So this is important for our foreign policy. Now, one of the other issues that, that Congressman Cuellar brought up, that many of his colleagues oppose this, is because they think, well, we should be doing more with renewable. They want more so-called green energy. And this is a fact. They do want more green energy. But the reality is we are going to be using, as Congressman Cuellar told me today, we need a transition. We're going to be using fossil fuels for a long time to come. And so we want to uh, encourage our American in industry because this will help us set the markets and help the jobs in the United States and, uh, you know, give our allies national security. That's why this bill is important. I would encourage everyone listening today to call your senators because on Friday, October 9th, H.R. 702 did pass the House. But next it goes to the Senate, where it will not be so easy as we don't as there is not a strong Republican majority in the Senate. So pick up your phone today, call your senators, both of them, and say, please tell Senator so and so to support lifting the oil export ban. 
I see that this bill is a win-win. I hope that you will stay tuned to the rest of our show on America's Voice for Energy. As I said, next coming up, we have Congressman Pierce from New Mexico, and he will talk about why this is important for jobs in the oil industry. Our third guest, Jim Petty, president of the Maritime Institute, and our closing guest is going to be Toby Mack from the Energy Equipment and Infrastructure Alliance. I hope you'll stay tuned for this important topic. I think this is a really important show. I hope you'll tell your friends about America's Voice for Energy, heard every single week, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on americaswebradio.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm pleased for this segment to have with us my friend, Congressman from my home state of New Mexico. And I had the privilege of sharing the platform with Congressman Pierce last Thursday in Washington, D.C., when I participated in a press conference uh, to encourage votes for the lifting of the oil export ban. I was also, uh, it was a treat for me to be in the House chambers, in the gallery, when the, the House of Representatives voted to lift the oil export ban. And, of course, Congressman Pierce's vote was one of those yes votes. And Congressman Pierce, I'm glad you're able to join me today, but I want to start by saying that I was at the uh, New Mexico Oil and Gas Association annual meeting a couple weeks ago, and uh, you were not there because you had a scheduled conflict, and I know you usually are there, 
But I was surprised that uh, when Governor Mart Susana Martinez spoke, as she always does at the opening of the conference on Monday morning, that the only thing, the only line that she got real applause for was when she talked about her efforts to support the effort to lift the oil export ban. So obviously uh, this is something the oil producers in New Mexico, many of whom are in your district, really care about. So tell us about, about this vote. Well, sure. And first of all, thanks, Marita, for your work on this. I will tell you, this was a, a nationwide coming together of different viewpoints, and uh, so your leadership is deeply appreciated. Uh, but the vote basically was was uh, was important for New Mexico, and uh, the governor got applause because uh, it, people know that it will put people back to work almost immediately. Uh, the Baltics have been into southeast New Mexico and told that group there of producers that we would buy your oil and stop buying Russian oil if you could export it. And so that would be a win-win for us. But those those markets are available immediately. And uh, and so it's it's not like we'd have to go and sell them. They're, they're hoping to get out from underneath the thumb of Russia. But that's the reason that it was getting applause at Namoga. But the, uh, the bill uh, has, has to, the, the ban was put in place back in the uh, 40 years ago during President uh, Ford's term. Now, the world was different then. We were laboring on the, uh, under the idea that we had reached peak oil, that uh, oil was in the process of diminishing to zero. In fact, New Mexico was leading the revolution that put much more energy into the pipelines as resulted in the price going down. That's good for consumers. But now then that we can't sell it overseas, uh, producers in New Mexico are being penalized. So it's a very critical vote, one that is uh, too late in coming. We should have done it years ago, but I'm happy to have been a part of it. Yeah, and it, it means a lot of jobs, as you pointed out, and the that your district is a part of. We've seen a lot of layoffs uh, and, and rigs being stacked up. And can you explain how lifting the oil export ban will help help uh, stem the losses in the industry and bring some of those jobs back? Absolutely. The, uh, uh, the refineries basically across America, and there's some exceptions, but most of them are set up to handle the heavy sour crude that comes in from Venezuela, from Saudi Arabia, uh, from Russia, and that heavy sour crude is more expensive to refine, but the refineries are not set up to handle our high-grade, light, sweet crude. So what is happening is the refineries, so once they start reaching capacity, they just leave our, our oil sitting in the pipelines and, in fact, bid below market price for our oil because, uh, because there's no real competition for it. So that oil that is filling up the pipelines to Houston from southeast to Mexico right now is available for sale to anybody to the highest bidder, and uh, there are countries willing to pay for it right now. It would be better for those European countries to be on our oil using that. It would improve our strategic alliance with them, but mostly it keeps the Russians from literally 
uh, extorting higher payments from them. Russia will sell off their oil, their gas, anything to uh, make more money. And so we, uh, we just feel like that it would be good for our friends around the world. It would be good for our producers here in New Mexico. Yeah, and, you know, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. a couple months ago, or last month, a couple weeks ago, for the House Energy and Commerce Committee meeting where they voted this bill out of the committee. And, and you know, the world has changed just since then, just since the committee voted uh, for to bring H.R. 702 out of committee because at the time uh, Russia was not being the um, – bad actor that it is right now and so the idea of passing the oil export ban uh, out of not only the house but in out of the senate as well is even more important now than it was when it passed out of committee because of you know with russia being aggressive in the middle east it it, it certainly brings home to anyone who's paying attention why this is an important uh a bill one of the urgent questions I get from my constituents when I come back home and I'm here this week is what can we do to stop Vladimir Putin? The answer is shut the money off. He would not be able to do nearly as much damage around the world if he weren't selling his oil. We have the opportunity to take the markets away from him with our better oil. It's just it has an an artificial restriction that comes through government regulation, and it is time for us to change it. Yeah, you know, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but you brought up what can we do to uh, curtail Vladimir Putin. And I've heard a lot on the news that some people are saying, some of the pundits are saying that his current aggression, the goal of his current aggression is at least in part to raise the price of oil because he needs uh, Russia, the country, needs more revenues. Do you have any opinion on that? I do, and uh, that is exactly right. The All of the indicators are that that Venezuela is very near bankrupt because they depend so much on it. They right. spend the oil revenues. So Russia is having significant troubles also, and so maybe he's trying to do that in the Middle East. I just know that Democrat, Republican presidents for 50 years have worked studiously to keep Russia out of the Middle East, and this president has turned his back and let them walk into the Middle East. It is, uh, it's as damaging as the Iranian agreement, in my opinion. Well, speaking of uh, the, this president's actions in the Middle East, uh, President Obama, uh, on the Wednesday before you all voted for, the, for H.R. 702 in the House, issued a veto threat. Uh, what do you think is his motive? Do you think he will would really veto it if it makes it through the Senate? It really doesn't matter to me if he does or not, because it's time for the American people to see who he is. Senator Reid, for six years, kept this president from having to make any decisions. He bottled up every piece of legislation. So it is my belief that if the American people see this president veto that legislation, it will cost the Democrats the next presidential election. People are deeply worried about the country's economy. They're worried about jobs. Their kids are not getting jobs when they graduate from college. This president has has fought to get Iran to be able to export oil, and yes. then he went on the backside say he would stop 
us from exporting our oil. Shame on them. Yeah, it's 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 really created, I think, a split in the Democrat Party, as we've seen with Keystone Pipeline. You've got the unions uh, who really wanted the Keystone Pipeline and want the jobs, and I've had union officials on my show talking about the jobs they want from the Keystone Pipeline and they want it to go through. But then we've got the environmentalists who repeatedly threaten the president if he supports that, and I, I think we see the exact same split coming through uh, with this bill to lift the oil export ban. Absolutely correct. The unity of the shipping would be in, in American ships, and that's heavily unionized labor. I don't mind uh, the fact that, uh, that people uh, on the ships are unionized. I just want American oil to be sold worldwide. And I would love for people to be uh, using American ships and those workers to have jobs, too. So the president is going to continue to run a very radical agenda because of the extreme environmentalists. And I think that we should make that more public. Nothing would do it more than having him veto this bill. So put it on his desk and make him veto it. That is my belief. Now, in order for it to get to his desk, for him to veto, of course, uh, the Senate would have to pass it. And the, the likelihood, I mean, it was a pretty easy lift in the, in the House, I believe, because of the majority of Republicans. The majority is so wide. The spread is wide. Uh, we also got 26 Democrats to vote along with the Republicans in the House. But uh, the, everyone says that's going to be a lot tougher uh, in the Senate, in fact, one of one of my uh, the people who I whose opinions I value today said to, said to me after he read my column that uh, it will never get through the Senate. What do you think? I think that it's time for the Democrats to stand up and start supporting jobs in America. That's what this bill is. If they refuse to let the bill, if it comes to the floor, I will guarantee you the Democrats will have to vote for it. The maritime provision was in there in, uh, in part to satisfy Senator Reid and his Democrats. And if he at this point turns it down, I think it's to this party's political risk. But the bigger question is on whether or not the filibuster should be allowed to operate the way it does. We've easily got the votes, the Republican votes, to pass it. It's that it uh, has got to go through this the filibuster has to be stopped in order to even debate it. Uh, until the 1970s, the filibuster, you had actually stand in the well and filibuster like Rand Paul has done a couple of times. Yes. If we went back to those rules, then we would be okay because people would see who was blocking what. In the 70s, they went to a system where you simply have to sign your name that you would filibuster it. So people never are called to stand up. They get to sign kind of a secret little document. I think it's time for Mr. McConnell to go back to the rules that existed until the 70s, make people stand in the well of the Senate and block things. I don't think that as many people, as not as many bills would be blocked. The Senate is basically dysfunctional in the capacity that it is right now. So they need to fix the problem. We only have about 20 seconds left. Do you think there's any chance of McConnell changing those rules? That's up to him, but I'm telling you, the American people are fed up. Look at the way into which presidential candidates they're supporting. They are ready for the system to start working.
Yeah, I certainly agree that American, the American public is fed up, and our presidential candidates on the Republican side, those that are leading, certainly indicates that. Congressman Steve Pierce from New Mexico, I appreciate you joining me today on Energy. Your, uh, your voice held out, and I hope, uh, hope you, you get your voice back fully quickly. Thanks for your great work. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. In this segment, we're going to be talking with Jim Taddy. He is the president of the Maritime Institute, and he also represents a coalition of USA Maritime. And we're going to talk about the Maritime Security Program and its inclusion in H.R. 702, the bill to lift the oil export ban. I met Jim last week while I was in Washington, D.C., as we were both working to get this bill across the finish line with as many Democrats on board as possible. So I invited Jim to join us today to talk about what is this maritime security program and why it's important to our national security. I've never heard about this program before last week, and I assume most of my listeners also have never heard about this program, and I had to ask a lot of questions so that I could understand it and uh, get behind it and, and why it's important to American national security. So, Jim Patty, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. <laughs> Now, you spoke at two press conferences there in Washington, D.C., the pre-vote press conference that I was a part of, and then kind of the victory uh, press conference that was after the bill had passed the House. And you addressed, obviously, this, this maritime security program. How could you explain that to our listeners that are not familiar with this program at all? Well, the, Marit the maritime security program was signed into law by President Bill Clinton in 1996. 
Since that time, this program has enjoyed strong bipartisan support from each administration and from each Congress since that time. And essentially, the Maritime Security Program and its 60-ship Maritime Security Fleet of privately owned, militarily useful U.S. flag commercial vessels provide... Yeah, I want, I want to stop there for just a second because okay. that's an important thing. Privately owned, military useful... U.S. flag vessel. I just want. I think that's an important concept. So I just wanted to stop and draw attention sure. to that. At its at its core, the Maritime Security Program is is a government private industry partnership, and through this partnership, the private shipping companies who own and operate these vessels apply to have their vessels included in the Maritime Security Fleet, which based on uh, the Department of Defense's estimates of what it needs in order to protect our security around the world and to support American troops, right now is a fleet of 60 United States flagged, United States crewed vessels. The bottom line for being included in this maritime security fleet is that you have to meet the definitions of militarily useful as set forth by the Department of Defense in conjunction with the Department of Transportation. This means that these are vessels that will be operating commercially, they'll be operated by their private shipping company owners and operators until and unless there is a need on the part of Department of Defense to utilize these vessels, their crews, and the vessel's capacity. So essentially it's like a retainer that we're saying, we're going to give you this, this amount of funds to, to have you at the ready if we need you. And if we do need you, you have to break your contracts with your commercial shippers and put our military needs as your priority. That, that's absolutely correct. And from an economic standpoint, from purely an economic standpoint, the cost of the maritime security program to the, to the American taxpayer has been estimated to be a, a, and I always hate to use the word fraction when we're talking millions versus billions, but a fraction of the cost of what it would require the federal government and the American taxpayer to spend if this program did not exist. For example, the National Defense Transportation Association Military Seamless Committee estimated that just to replicate the vessel capacity provided by the owners and operators who participate in the Maritime Security Program, it would cost the taxpayer approximately $13 billion. In comparison, in contrast, the cost of the Maritime Security Program under the legislation that just passed the House on Friday would be $300 million with an M. So right there, without taking into account the cost of maintaining these vessels, the cost of the crews, the cost of the worldwide intermodal and logistics networks that these carriers provide the Department of Defense for no additional cost, estimated to be, if I, if I can say, at approximately uh, another $52 billion, the Maritime Security Program, for anyone who is interested in holding down federal spending, anyone who believes that private industry can do the job cheaper and more efficiently and more effectively than if the government did it itself, anyone who believes that should be a strong supporter of the Maritime Security Program. That's why every Congress since 1996, that's why every president, uh, beginning with Bill Clinton, that's why the Department of Defense have all strongly supported the Maritime Security Program.
Yes, and when Duncan Hunter, congressman from California, Representative Duncan Hunter, spoke at the press conference that I participated in, uh, he brought up when he was in the wars in in Afghanistan and in Iraq that it was this program that brought them the supplies that they needed. And he also pointed out, basically, you know, would you want our uh, supplies for our U.S. military being shipped on foreign flag ships. And that was certainly, you know, all of this was all new to me. Did I lose you? I did lose you. Okay, so, uh, David, we've got a loss here. We're going to have to somehow, somehow I lost him. Hopefully he'll be back and uh, we'll be able to pick up there. I'll just stay here and hopefully... He will return. I'm just holding here. Hopefully he will return. There you are. You're back. Jim Patty? Jim, okay, you're back. I'm back. I have no idea what happened. I don't either, but I, I heard you drop off and there was this long pause. So I was saying... When you when you disappeared and mm-hmm. I stopped my stopwatch, and I was just saying to my producer, hopefully he'll be back. Hopefully he'll be back. <laughs> so uh, I was saying that talking about uh, Duncan Hunter, saying that this program when he was in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, that this this program uh, is what brought the supplies to their team. So if you could come back and say something like, yes, that's exactly what yes. this program does. Well, okay, so we'll go to, hang on, we'll go to you, let me just do a timing thing. When I, it, at three, it'll be, or at one, it'll be you. Okay, so we'll go to you in, you ready? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one. Well, Congressman Hunter, needless to say, was absolutely right. In fact, since 2009, privately owned U.S. flag commercial vessels and their civilian U.S. citizen crews transported 90% of the cargo needed to support U.S. military operations and rebuilding programs in Iraq and Afghanistan. And significantly, vessels enrolled in the Maritime Security Program carried 99% of these cargoes. Without without the assured U.S. flag commercial sea lift capability provided by the Maritime Security Program, U.S. troops stationed overseas could very likely find themselves dependent on foreign vessels and foreign crews to deliver the supplies and the, and the equipment they need to do their job on our behalf, something that is unfair and dangerous for our troops and something that does not in any way contribute to the overall security interests of the United States. Well, I mean, that's a huge percentage when you give us those kind of numbers of how much of our military uh, needs were met with these uh, privately owned U.S. US ships, and yet this is a program that nobody really has ever heard of before. Well, I mean, it is, I mean part, of, part of that we like to think is because the program has worked so efficiently. The government, Department of Transportation, the Department of Defense, private industry, the shipping companies, and the labor unions work constantly to make sure that the capability is there, that the right mix of vessels is available, that that the crews are not only available, but that they are trained to do the job that the Department of Defense needs. And it's worked very smoothly uh, since it's been put into place. And it's almost one of those things where as long as it keeps doing what it's doing, it provides 
the capability that um, that the Defense Department has to have. Uh, you, you know, it's, it hopefully will continue to move along those lines. This this really is why I think the sponsors of HR seven hundred two uh, did what they did by adding provisions to the oil export legislation relating to this program. Uh, prior to the consideration of, of HR seven hundred two, the oil export uh, legislation, the, um, the defense authorizations bill warned that unless action is taken by Congress to enhance the maritime security program, we run the risk of losing this capability. This was an extremely, extremely foresighted, intelligent, and proper move on the part of the sponsors of H.R. 702 to utilize this vehicle, a vehicle that was coming to the floor, legislation that was going to be before the House of Representatives, and use this vehicle um, as a way to do precisely what defense experts, both within the Congress and out, say has to be done, and that's to dedicate the support necessary to stabilize the maritime security fleet. So these members of Congress deserve a tremendous, tremendous amount of credit for acting the way they did. Yes, because I understand that the amount of uh, U.S. of dollars that are given to these uh, industries, I shouldn't use the term given because that, that uh, gives a wrong implication, but provided to these industries for them to be on standby, basically, uh, has not been increased since it, the program was introduced in, did you say, 1996? Well, the, the amount the amount of the amount of payment available to each vessel, or that each vessel in the program is eligible to receive, has not increased since 2012. And on absent the the action taken by the House last Friday, it was not scheduled to increase again until 2019. So that's that's a long period of time in which the the assistance, the support provided by the U.S. government to help maintain these vessels under the United States flag was going to remain very static. And because of, of a, a numerous things taking place in the world, um, there's the reduction in peacetime defense cargoes, there's the reduction in cargoes that have been financed by the Export-Import Bank, reductions in food aid cargoes, the proliferation of what we refer to as flags of convenience vessels that don't comply with the same rules and regulations and tax obligations as U.S. flag vessels and their crews. These are all having a very, very negative effect on the ability of vessels that are enrolled in the maritime security program to operate commercially and to compete for cargo. And as you said, you use the word stipend or retainer. Um, the payment that these vessels are eligible to receive is really to help narrow the gap between the cost of doing business under the American flag and the cost of doing business around the world so that these vessels can continue to be available whenever and wherever needed by the Department of Defense. You know, and you bring up the, the difference in the cost of doing business under foreign flags versus U.S. flag. We know that in general in America, everything costs more because we have stricter regulations, we have better working conditions, we have uh, stricter security standards, and whether it's manufacturing or whether it's mining or whether it's shipping, those costs are higher uh, within the United States because of those, those more stringent regulations. Absolutely, we have. I mean, we have Coast Guard regulations that are that are among the most stringent in the world. We have tax obligations. U.S. shipping companies pay taxes. American mariners pay taxes. Around the world, you'll find many of these 
many of these ship owners and ship operators who operate foreign flag vessels don't have those same type of tax obligations. Throughout the world, there are mariners who don't have to pay taxes on the income they earn. Um, so there are a variety of factors that come into this equation and a variety of factors that lead to the conclusion that if we accept the fact that it is critical to our national security and critical to protect our troops overseas, that we have the capability under our own flag to bring them what they need, then the maritime security program is really the way to go. Yes, and Jim Patty, uh, president of the Maritime Institute, uh, you've done an excellent job explaining this for our listeners today on America's Voice for Energy. I appreciate you joining us. We've got just a few seconds left. Anything else you want to add? No, I would, I would just again say that we look forward to continuing to work on this legislation. We, um, we plan on now working with our colleagues as part of this large coalition to bring this legislation to the attention of the Senate and through the Senate. And um, I just, again, appreciate, greatly appreciate the opportunity to explain this critically important program uh, to your listeners. Thank you. And I think our listeners see how critically important it is now that you've explained it. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing session of America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking today about the vote on Friday on Capitol Hill to lift the oil export ban. You know, and one of the things that really helped to bring along some of the Democrat uh, House members on board with this vote is looking at the jobs that would be created in their districts. And so I'm delighted to have back with us again today Toby Mack, who is the president of the Energy Equipment and Infrastructure Alliance. And we've had him with us before talking about the jobs that would be created if this bill was lifted and, therefore, uh, our oil could be exported overseas. So, Toby, I I appreciate you joining us again today to talk about this important issue. My pleasure. So you were there with me in Washington, D.C., last Thursday, we spoke together at a press conference, and we watched the bill uh, in the House and the votes taking place. What were your observations? Well, I thought um, that the vote went well. It certainly was the culmination of a long ground game of trying to show 
members of Congress on both sides of the aisle uh, just how much lifting the crude oil export ban would mean for their constituents in their districts. And we did this by uh, developing uh, data analyses industry by industry for each congressional district to show exactly what the job creation would look like if the oil export ban were lifted and if our producers uh, were able to get access to the additional markets uh, for which they would have to develop more crude oil, and that, of course, would then drive all the business through the supply chain. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, for me, I just flew in for a day on Saturday, I mean, in September, not Saturday, in September, and uh, observed the vote taking place in the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and then I just flew in again last week to participate briefly, but you've been there really on the ground working this issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, and were the representatives that you met with surprised with the data that you were able to show them? I think some were, and I, I, I it resonated with a good number of members of Congress, uh, although in some cases it, uh, it seemed to not uh, make the difference that it needed to make, and that was, that was something that we were, um, we certainly um, uh, argued for, but uh, in, in some cases there are members of Congress that I think have other priorities than job creation in um, in their constituencies, which is puzzling to me. But it seemed to me that the people that had closed well, their wait, mind. Well, let, let me stop for yeah. just a second. Let oh, me sure. stop you. So, okay. so would their priority then be towing the party line, or meeting the goals of the environmental movement, or siding with the president? I think it, some were some. You could say were all of the above. Um, <laughs> I. I I think I think some members of Congress just have this fundamental belief that um, uh, fossil fuel, or in fact any kind of energy other than wind and solar, uh, is bad, and the less we produce of it and the less we use of it, uh, the better off we are, and notwithstanding the fact uh, that's an enormous industry that drives tremendous opportunity and jobs. And by the way, most of these jobs are blue-collar jobs. Uh, there are professional jobs, but there's a tremendous number of um, uh, jobs that in the trades, like welders and truck drivers, construction workers, equipment operators, uh, and, and throughout those kinds of trades that are skilled and very high-paying. Yeah, and I understand from some of my other work that there's been a real shortage, for example, of welders in the industry. I don't know where it is right now with, unfortunately, the tremendous job loss in the oil and gas industry, but there's been a big need for those, for those tradesmen. Yeah, it's, and, and welders are, are, are in demand throughout the whole energy value chain. Um, and, again, the driver being production, but when you think of it, you need welders uh, to weld the pipelines that carry the the um, the product, to, you know, from the wellhead to the market. You need welders to fabricate the drill rigs. You need welders to uh, fabricate the equipment used on on the drill site and in construction of um, uh, infrastructure facilities necessary to uh, to energy development. So there, that's one category, and they were one of the classes of trade that were in the uh, highest demand and, and, and had the greatest shortage. And I agree that, that, that they're probably in the, in the latest downturn. Unfortunately, there's probably been a slackening off, but I think it will come back with a vengeance. And my concern with it is with all these skilled trades, 
that uh, that because because the the market is so soft now, and that's principally, by the way, because we can't access global markets because of the ban. That when it does come back, uh, the industry is going to find itself in a very very critical uh, steel shortage um, uh, situation. Yeah, you mentioned it coming back, the industry coming back. Can you share with our listeners how this lifting the oil export ban? Uh, will help create jobs. I just did an interview on a, a different radio show where I was the guest earlier today, and they asked me that same question, is how will lifting this ban create jobs? Yeah, it's it's uh, actually pretty simple. By lifting the export ban, we will give our producers access to global markets. Our studies show that if our producers did have access to sell globally rather than just inside um, our own boundaries, they could produce and market at least another 2 million barrels per day by 2018, which is a, a tremendous amount of additional new production. That production is what drives all of these supply chain jobs because when you have uh, that much more uh, production, you have all of the, the, the additional exploration, the drilling, the well pad uh, preparation, uh, the pipeline installations, all of the equipment and supplies and materials that go into production, um, all have to occur down inside that supply chain, and that's where the jobs get created. Our studies, you by know, the way, show – go ahead. Oh, well, I was just saying, you know, it's interesting. When I left Washington, D.C., as you know, I left you all, said goodbye, and headed to the airport. I sat next to a gentleman on the plane on my way out of Washington, D.C., between D.C. and Denver, and he was a young man, a father, had a couple kids, but he was a young man, and he had just finished a week of training in, uh, in Virginia for his trade, and he is in the commercial heating and air conditioning installation business. And as we talked, he totally understood the importance of the oil export ban. Now, he hasn't thought about it, but as we talked, and he said to me, I have friends who have been working on a, a building project for Anadarko, which is a, an energy company, oil and gas company, and he said they were building new buildings for Anadarko, and three buildings were planned, and two have been built, and he said the third one has been put on hold because of the low price of oil, and so his friends in the heating and air conditioning business, um, their jobs, are they don't have this job now because the Anadarko building has been put on hold. And so here's kind of, that's kind of a, a supply chain job that you wouldn't really even think of, but yet it directly impacted this guy's friends in the heating and air conditioning business. Yeah, and that story gets retold uh, time and again in, in all kinds of different uh, vertical industries. Uh, when, when you think of, the, of that value chain or that supply chain, take a piece of construction equipment, for example. That piece of equipment is used to level uh, an area where the, the well is going to be drilled, but it's also used uh, to dig trenches for pipelines. It's used to uh, uh, construct um, uh, buildings and infrastructure around uh, the development. But then you think of what goes into that bulldozer. Let's say it's a bulldozer. You've got all of the steel. You've got all of the hydraulic components. You've got the engine. You've got valves and fittings and gaskets and all the stuff uh, that go into that machine. Um, 
that are produced by other suppliers to the machine producer. And so, and then they have their own suppliers uh, to, to be able to produce those components that go into the machine. So that the, 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 the supply chain really goes down three, four, five, six layers down uh, suppliers of suppliers of suppliers of suppliers. And so, and so by the time you get to some of those really, uh, the, the, those, those, those product categories down that level, um, some of the people may not even know that, that their business is being driven by the demand for that bulldozer uh, on that well pad. So it's a very, very complex um, set of uh, supply relationships, but they have one thing in common. Uh, when we are producing um, natural gas and crude oil, they work. They have product to make. They have demand for their products, and uh, they've got jobs. And that's exactly where the Energy Equipment and Infrastructure Alliance focuses us on those jobs. That's exactly right. And when you think of it, and, you, and, and, you, and, and by the way, our study shows that if, the, if crude oil were able to be exported from the United States, by 2018, because of that additional 2 million barrels per day plus that we'd be producing, by 2018, that would, that would create... 440,000 new jobs in the supply chain. And so when you think of it, 60 different industries make up the supply chain for oil and gas. Wow. 60 different industries. That's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, you, you've, you've met with congressmen and representatives on the Hill. It's now this bill that we both have worked on has now passed the House with 26 Democratic votes, goes to the Senate. We've got two minutes left. Uh, together here, Toby. Where 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 does your work go next? Well, we go to the Senate with the uh, with the measure that's um, that, that's working its way there, and um, you know we're optimistic that we can you know use the same you know very very compelling facts and logic uh, that drove us uh, drove success in the House into the Senate. We've got you know you've got a small smaller number of people to convince. There's 100 senators as opposed to 435 congressmen. Uh, so we, ha we, we have the ability to really zero in on some key members that we think would benefit the greatest or whose, whose states would benefit the greatest. And so we're, we're taking the fight to the Senate, and we're going to take our logic, we're going to take our data, we're going to take examples of people that would have jobs or do have jobs because of energy and show them where, uh, where those benefits accrue in their, in their states. Now, you know, would you would you say that basically, you know, we had what, I don't remember exactly, 61, 62 votes for the Keystone Pipeline bill in the Senate. Would you say those same people would be likely ones to vote to lift the oil export ban? Yeah, I think generally speaking they would. Uh, I don't know that, 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 that the, the dynamic would be a, a complete match. But people, I think, that were inclined towards uh, Keystone would be inclined towards lifting the ban. So... That certainly would be a place to start. Um, and, you know, I don't know. There are a couple of thresholds you have to meet in the Senate. In the House, you need a simple majority. In the Senate, you need 60 votes just to clear the procedural hurdle of getting the bill on the floor. So we've got to get to 60 first. Uh, yes. And that's, 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 our, that, that's our goal. Well, you keep at it. We've been talking with Toby Mack, who is the president of the Energy, Equipment, and Infrastructure Alliance, working hard on the Hill to help get this oil export ban lifted. Toby, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy and wrapping up our show. 
Thank you, Marita. It's a pleasure, and uh, love to come back and visit with you. Well, I hope we can take a victory lap after the Senate vote. I do, too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Toby. Thanks for listening to America's Voice for Energy. Please join us again next week on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed